Last week we spent a little over an hour looking at two verses. This week we're going to do the entire chapter, 14 verses. You do the math. I got one word for you, Seahawks fans. TiVo. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 12. We have referred to this chapter perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible with the exception of Revelation 19 over the last 10 or 11 years. This is huge. And what the Lord has to say, what He said through the prophet Zechariah, some 450, maybe 480 years before Christ came on the scene, what He told His people Israel through Zechariah, not about Christ's first coming, but about His second coming, is breathtaking. This is truly one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And I'm so glad you're here this morning to study it through. What we learn of Jesus here, what we learn of the plan of God here, is astounding. I'm just going to read it through, we'll pray about it, and then walk it out. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified. Above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn. Every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Natan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain. Every family by itself. 
and their wives by themselves. Lord Jesus, what an awesome, awesome statement. And Father, you put yourself on the hook here to fulfill what you said. Is the the Lord a man that He should lie? Your Word says, of course not. You speak and it comes to be. And what we read here, Father, we wait for in expectation. Jerusalem waits in expectation. Your people, though at this time, as a nation, remain blind, remain bewildered. Lord, may they see this great day. I pray that knowing they will, knowing we will, knowing, Father, this is going to happen because You declared it and we simply align ourselves with Your truth and we say, Come, Lord Jesus. We believe You for Your Word. And as we walk through this today, Lord, open our hearts with insight. Increase our anticipation, our expectation, and may that, Father, overflow like a raging river into the way we are living our lives in these last days. Holy Spirit, we pray for the Spirit of grace and supplication to be poured out on us this morning as we receive the ministry of the Word in Jesus' name. Amen. With chapter 12, we come to the last oracle of Zechariah. And if the prophet has taught us anything, you know it's that the Lord remembers. The Lord blesses at the appointed time. Well, guess what? We've come to the appointed time. Zechariah 12 is all about the appointed time. It is the subject of the final prophecy of Zechariah. Beginning in verse 3, the prophet repeats a phrase 16 times in these last three chapters, an important phrase. But let me ask you, knock, knock. Yom Ha. Exactly. Yom Ha Hu is the phrase in Hebrew. Yom Ha Hu. What does that phrase mean? It means in that day. In that day, Zechariah says, in that day, 16 times in three chapters. He is focused on, he is talking about, he is looking to what will happen in that day. He's already used the phrase three times as we've studied through the book of Zechariah. Back in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. And will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Well, who's me? Jesus. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 16. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. As the stones of a crown sparkling in his land in that day. And by the way, the closing words of the entire book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 21, just so happen to be in that day. It is a day that the Lord wants you to be aware of. It is not a day that the Lord would bring about by surprise. 
It is a Lord, it's a day that we should fully understand as a work of the Lord. And He has laid it out. You can almost track the day when you put all the scripture together. You can almost track it hour by hour. The most remarkable day on the planet. Now, we're coming close to Christmas. And there was a day, 2,000 years ago, that was a remarkable day, but it was so quiet. In fact, it was a night when the angels sang and the shepherds raced across the hills and they came to Bethlehem and they saw the baby there. But this day, oh, this day is the day that that one only anticipated, only was in preparation of. Jesus came the first time to prepare and get the world ready and looking for the second time, a day that is about to occur. What day are we talking about? It is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, if you have been like me, over the years, if you've heard that phrase, the day of the Lord, and your immediate reaction to it is negative, don't let that be so. We've talked about in recent studies that the day of the Lord begins with the input, the the advent of Jesus back into the world, God actively and physically and visibly working out His will in the world. It begins on a very dark day, yes. But it travels on into that great millennial kingdom. It concludes at what is called the great throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. It is one big, long, glorious day. But we begin, like most Jewish days, well, like all Jewish calendar days, we begin at darkness, at nightfall. The day of the Lord begins in a dark place. And Zechariah picks it up in the darkest hour of the night. But He leads us toward the dawning of the coming of the Lord. The appointed time for Israel is in that day. Now, some have tried to connect the prophecies of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. This this singular prophecy, but all these words, some have tried to connect it to the past. In fact, there are those liberal critics who would try to uh, date Zechariah not in 520 or 500 or 480, but back before the Babylonian captivity so that they can say everything he warns about happened when the Jews went to Babylon. There's that position. There are those who say, good uh, actual Bible scholars who, who say, no, no, he's talking about the Maccabean War. Judas Maccabees and his brothers fighting against Antiochus Epiphanes around 186 or one sorry 168 BC. There are others who come along and say, no, no. What Zechariah prophesied, and they believe he was prophesying, and they believe it's the word of the Lord, and they are good conservative Bible scholars for the most part, and they believe that this was all fulfilled with the destruction of the Second Temple and Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Three different positions, three different ways to be completely wrong about what the Word is saying. Well, how do you know that, Rick? I mean, you just have your position, right? You're just a, you just have one position among the many, right? Well, let me give you three biblical questions related to that day coming directly out of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, and you tell me if it's one of those days past or if it is a day yet future. The questions are, number one, when has the Spirit of God ever been poured out on the nation of Israel? So that they might recognize the one whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10. It has never happened. It did not happen in AD 70. And of course did not happen at any time prior. Second question. 
when has Messiah ever stood barefooted on the Mount of Olives? Well, he stood on the Mount of Olives a lot, Rick. Splitting it from east to west? To fight against those nations gathered against Zion with all his holy ones with him? When has that ever happened? You see, it has not. That's Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 5. Question number three. When has the person of Messiah, when has God the Lord in the person of Messiah ever become king over all the earth, the only one? Zechariah 14, 9. It hasn't happened. Even for those who would try to claim that we are in the kingdom age and the church is the kingdom, you have to answer the question, is God king over all the earth? And the answer is no. All of that happens in this day. This is not a day past. This is a day that must be future because all of that has not happened. And it all happens concurrently. It is the final conflict of this earth. It is the faithful consummation of all of God's promises concerning Israel. Hence, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Israel is involved. Israel is the focal point. Well, Messiah is the focal point. But Israel is at issue. And for those replacement theologians, those those churches who would say that the church has replaced Israel, that the church is now Israel, have completely missed the promise that was given to Zechariah, through Zechariah, to the Jewish people. This is concerning Israel. This is not concerning the church. Where will the church be? With Him. Coming back with Him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. That word burden, we've seen it before. Massah. It is a burden. It is a weight. It is a judgment, so to speak. It is a heaviness. And this is Israel's greatest burden. Zechariah chapter 12. Israel's greatest burden is described throughout this chapter. Jeremiah described it. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And Paul picks up on that in Romans 11.26. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So Rick, this is an Israel teaching. That's what I'm picking up. Yes and no. Yes and no. The relevance of of this teaching to you and I today, to to the church today, is amazing because if God is incapable of pulling off Israel's salvation, all salvation is in jeopardy. If God can't save the Jewish people as He promised, what makes us think He can save us? Israel's only hope is my only hope. Same hope. The hope of Israel is the hope of the church, and that is Messiah Jesus Christ. And if God does not follow through in every single promise He made, then He is not true to His Word. But here's the good news. So far, He has followed through with every single promise He's ever made. Jeremiah 17, verse 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. 
Heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved for you are my praise. So the question you may ask yourselves this morning is, do I need healing? Do I need saving? And where is my hope? The hope of Israel is the hope of all people. And so this teaching matters greatly to you and to me. We're going to walk it through expositionally. That just means verse by verse. We're going to look at it in three parts. I am positive I will not cover everything. So please continue to study and read and let the Word speak to you through this week especially. But we'll begin with part one, the continuation of creation. If you want to jot this down, if you're a note taker, the continuation of creation. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Now this is where God begins and it's marvelous. He starts off with his power to perform his will. He's about to share what his will is, what his desire is, what he's going to do. But before he says that, he says, let me give you my credentials. Let me share with you, let me make clear who it is who's going to accomplish all of this. It is He who stretches out the heavens. Well, that's universal power. It's He who lays the foundations of the earth. Well, that's global control. And it is He who forms the spirit of man within Him. And that is most intimate touch. Universal power, global control, intimate touch. From the mighty planet spinning in outer space to the purple mountain's majesty on the earth to the tiniest spark of human life. Get this, God is all in. God is involved. God is interacting. He is not the distant God of the deist. The deist, deism is the belief that, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere. Got the ball rolling, you know, as it were. Flicked the marble of earth and got it spinning. But now has nothing really to do with us or with the universe or with the planet or with human beings. He's, he's distant, he's detached. That's deism in a nutshell. But there are three words here that tell us differently about our God. Stretches out, lays, and forms. He stretches out, He lays, He forms, stretching out the heavens, He laying the foundations of the earth, forming the spirit within man, and all three of these in the Hebrew are active participles. What does that mean? It means that they are describing past, present, and future action in unbroken continuity. This is not just the one who stretched past tense the heavens, He's the one who stretches the heavens. He's still stretching them. Not the one who laid the foundation and walked away. He's the one who continues to lay the earth's foundation. He didn't start the heavens off hoping with a bang that the planets would just stay in line. Big bang theory. Why do we think that the universe has any organization at all? I mean, big bang theory is explosions and chaos. And you're telling me that out of chaos came order. Makes no sense. Doesn't work anywhere else. Yeah, but he just started it and left it alone. He laid the earth's foundation. Now he just wishes us the best of luck. You know? (laughs) 
He didn't form your spirit to send you on your merry way saying, thanks for stopping by. You see, the same God who is continuously active in the heavens, continuously active on the planet, desires to be continuously active in your life, in my life. Which means He didn't forget what you were doing from last Sunday. He didn't nod off for a week, and as we all came in here to worship, went, oh, they're back. Hey, guys. (laughs) Continuously active, powerfully presently and personally engaged in all of creation from the greatest planet to the smallest human life God is all in and that means you that means you this morning in the midst of the grandeur of what we're about to see here you matter to God you are important to Him I I was thinking about I continue to, you know, evaluate and think through the, the shift that we've made from the barn into this building. And it's still weird. Because the barn was so small and so intimate. You know, and this just seems so large by comparison. And yet, you know what? Truth is, you can sit in the middle of a vast expanse and God is right there with you. Amen. You can be in a crowd of a million people and you still matter to Him. And He is still intimately acquainted with all of your thoughts. Remove God from the picture and you have existential loneliness. You have emptiness. You've got meaninglessness. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. Psalm 139 verse 2 says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, even my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Now there's a new app that you can get. It's a texting app that apparently shows you what the person is texting you before it gets to you. While they're typing it. So if you're having a textument, an argument over text, you get to know what they're saying that they deleted because they realize it's probably not the most appropriate thing to say. I thought, I'm not getting that app, and I hope nobody else gets that app. (laughs) And yet, God has that app, and has for 6,000 years. He's had it since the beginning. Before you speak the word, God knows. Now that makes me shudder. Because I know there are times when I'm about to speak, and God's going, oh no, no, someone get the filter. Put the filter on Rick, quick! (laughs) Stop him! Before a word is even on my tongue... Psalm 139 verse 5 says, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now is that the distant God of deism? No. No, the God of Scripture is all in. He is the God who remembers. He is the God who blesses at the appointed time. And so he begins with this continuation of creation. I was in at the beginning, I am still in right now, and I will be in, in that day. And we come to part two, the cup that causes reeling. Verse two. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling or staggering to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. The cup that causes reeling, staggering, drunkenness is Jerusalem. 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 Named 814 times in the Bible. 
671 times it is named in the Hebrew Scriptures. 144 more times it is named in the New Testament. If you add into that the names Zion and City of David, there are over 1,000 direct references to Jerusalem in the Scriptures. It is mentioned 10 times in Zechariah chapter 12 alone, another 12 times in Zechariah 13 and 14 for 22 mentions in this singular prophecy. Jerusalem. Think it matters to the Lord. Think perhaps this city is important to our God. Ezekiel 5 verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. You Bible students know you're not going to find the name Jerusalem even once in the Koran. Muslims say Muhammad's ride to a far off place was Jerusalem. But there's nothing in the Koran to support that. And yet we see this battle going on for Jerusalem. A people who have it named 671 times in the Hebrew Scriptures and a people who can't point to one reference in their Scriptures fighting over Jerusalem. Of course, then you've got the rest of the world trying to claim it as well. Keep your finger in Zechariah 12 and go over to Psalm 122. Psalm 122, a little closer to the middle of your Bibles. It's one of the most important psalms that David ever wrote. It's a psalm of ascent, which simply means it's one of those songs that they would sing going up to the house of the Lord on feast days and festivals in Jerusalem. And so this song of ascent reads, Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. An ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. I'll pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And by the way, I believe that is the voice of the church praying for our Hebrew brothers and sisters. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, the Jewish people, I will now say, may peace be be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Oh, Jerusalem. This psalm is more historically and globally relevant now than it's ever been. Even the time when David wrote it. And obviously David wrote it of Jerusalem, being in Jerusalem. David loved Jerusalem. It was his favorite place to be. And it's a glorious place to be. And David wrote it back then that all the Jewish people would have a song to sing coming up to Jerusalem to worship and to approach the Lord. And they did and they would. But today, this is more relevant, I believe, than when David wrote it. And what's amazing to me is it would not have been, I couldn't have said that a hundred years ago. Just a century ago, 1914, 
Jerusalem was a dusty, desolate, remote city under Ottoman Turkish control. It was a backwater town. It was not considered important. Even by the Muslims who controlled it, it was pretty much a nothing. You realize that in the Ottoman Turk Empire, they had civic centers all around the empire, places that you could go for legal uh, counsel or for issues to be brought up. The, The main places that you had to go, the closest one to Jerusalem in those days was Damascus. Jerusalem itself was not even considered worthy of being a civic center in the Ottoman Empire. That was in 1914. Something else happened in 1914, you history buffs know. World War I broke out. By 1917, the Ottoman Empire was falling near the close of World War I that would fully finish in 1918, but by 1917, it was all but over. Jerusalem suddenly is back on the map. Now it was under British control. From 1920 to 1948, it was under what was called the British Mandate. The British maintained and held control over all of Palestine, which included uh, Israel. Today it included Syria. It included uh, parts of um, Jordan. Actually, I believe Syria was under French control, as well as Lebanon. France had that. And, and so the land of Israel and Jordan today, that entire region was called Palestine. Had been called Palestine for almost 2,000 years. 1,800 years, roughly. And so the British had control of it. In 1917, the UK Foreign Secretary, Sir Arthur James Balfour, offered Palestine, note this, all of Palestine, as a Jewish national home. He wrote what was called the Balfour Declaration, a very important declaration in those days. He said, we need to give all of this to the Jewish people for a home. For a homeland, which they were looking for at the time. Zionism was already on the rise. Theodore Herzl was already speaking loud and clear. We need a homeland for the Jewish people. Lord Balfour said, Palestine's it. Give them their land back. Well, then came the British White Paper of 1922. Five years later, it threw out the Balfour Declaration. By 1946, Transjordan was created for the Arabs. Transjordan, which is Jordan today, was carved out of the region, that whole region that was called Palestine, carved out and given to the Arabs that then the Jews might have a state. You see, the two-state solution was already at work back then. We'll give the Arabs Jordan, and then the Jews can have what's left of Palestine. But it wasn't enough. The Arab backlash was so fierce that eventually the land was divided yet again. What was already a small piece of land was divided into a Jewish state and an Arab state. In November of 1947, the United Nations voted it in. Jews accepted it. It wasn't much, but it was more than what they had. So they said, all right, we accept it. They voted yes. The Arabs didn't even vote. They rejected it. They walked out of the United Nations. All the nations of the world, however, did accept it in that historic vote. May 14th, 1948, Israel declared its independence on the eve of the Sabbath. May 15th, war broke out. Five Arab nations attacked Israel. And remarkably, miraculously, I would say, Israel won their independence. But they lost Jerusalem. It was a hard-fought battle. 
If you ever want to read about it, think it through. An amazing book called O Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, one of the best that I've read. In fact, it's so well written, it's an historical uh, document, it's a historical novel. But as you read through it, you keep hoping somehow the Jews are going to win. And you know they're not. But all the way down to the last page, I was disappointed when it was over. Ah, you know, it's history. What's the relevance of all that today? I'll tell you how relevant this is. There's a, a, a small group of people over in the Middle East called ISIS. They just in the last two weeks formed a partnership with another little group of people called Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra. There's a forming, growing, and if you notice the headlines in the last couple of days, the West does not realize how big ISIS really is. It is a vast, growing uh, army, if you will. They call themselves the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Actually, they call themselves ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. The Levant is all of Israel. That's the desire, that is the goal of ISIS, to restore an Islamic caliphate across the entire region, the size of the Ottoman Empire. And today, Jerusalem sits right in the middle of it as the most contested city in the world. The Israeli government just approved 200 more uh, apartments to go up in East Jerusalem, in Jewish East Jerusalem. And the Palestinian Arabs and the Israeli Arabs living there are furious about this. Every new uh, housing development for the Jewish people, if it's in East Jerusalem, which they consider West Bank, the Palestinians do, is infuriating. Maybe you've been watching. The most incendiary acreage in the world is the Temple Mount. And there's been massive demonstrations up there such that, and I have never seen this in, in the last 20 years at least, the Israeli government actually shut down prayer on the Temple Mount even for Muslims under a certain age, which infuriated them even more. Friday that was just opened up. Now all Muslims can go back up and do their praying on the Temple Mount. It is a hot spot. It is wild. And I cannot wait for our next tour to Israel. <laughs> And there are those watching all these things right now who are saying Israel may yet be facing a third intifada. What's an intifada? It's an uprising. An Arab uprising there have been two. From 1987 to 1993 was the first Arab intifada. It began when an Israeli Defense Force truck struck a civilian car killing four Palestinians. Rumors spread like wildfire that it was intentional and an uprising began. It continued from 87 to 93. It officially ended with the Oslo Peace Accords in 1993. But there was a second intifada, probably more familiar to most of us, the one that started in the year 2000 and ran eight years to 2008. It began, get this, when Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount. The intifadas, my friends, began as a result of a car accident and a visit to the Temple Mount. And that's all it took. Thank goodness nobody was drawing cartoons of Muhammad. And a filter right there. (laughs) 
the Palestinian Authority called what Ariel Sharon did a provocative move. And yes, sir, that's my baby, Arafat, called for Intifada. And it all began and stirred up. Eight years, we watched that. The Sparrow Pizza Place in Jerusalem. Perhaps you remember the suicide bomber who went into that place and blew it wide open. And Israel was under threat of suicide attacks constantly. They were on edge constantly. Eight years until finally the security fence was built. The security barrier has cut down on attacks inside of Israel some 97%. But we're seeing new ways of attacking. We're seeing Arabs driving in cars now. And I shouldn't say Arabs because you know you know this, you understand, but I'll say it again. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are Arabs. There are Arabs who love the Lord Jesus. There are Arabs who are innocent of this. But those Palestinians who are radicalized are jumping in vehicles now and mowing down people. One such attempt you could watch online. Guy in a, in a look like a white minivan comes flying into a bus stop trying to run over Jews. When he can't, he crashes into the bus stop, jumps out, stabbed a Jewish girl to death, and wounded two others. Is Jerusalem relevant to what's going on in the world today? Is Jerusalem today a cup that's causing reeling? It absolutely is. I was explaining all this to my son Hayden on Thursday morning. We're driving driving him to school and we're talking about these things. We were listening on the news to some of the things that were going on. And, and he said, Dad, what, what is the deal over there? So he got a history lesson. <laughs> Much more than you're getting right now. And after I went through all this stuff, and we were sitting in front of school, we were a little bit early, continued talking. When I, when I was done, he looked at me and goes, Dad, that is so, it's just so childish. It's like children on a playground fighting over a toy. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. But what Hayden needed to understand, what I think we all need to remember, is the roots of this hatred run deep. Thousands of years. Many in the church don't get it. They just say, oh, it's Israeli oppression of Palestinians, and if the Israelis would just lay down their weapons, it'd all be fine. (laughs) If the Israelis lay down their weapons, there would be no Israel. But it's thousands of years old, 4,000 years roughly, of a deep-seated hatred toward Israel by the descendants of Esau and Ishmael. Where do you get that? The Bible. Ezekiel chapter 35 verse 5 says, Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end... Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. That is God's word to the descendants of Esau Esau and Ishmael. That would include ISIS and Al-Qaeda. My friends, this is a hatred that has been boiling For 4,000 years, it's a 4,000 year old blood feud and Jerusalem sits in the middle of the crossfire. Jerusalem. The city of peace. That's actually not what Jerusalem means. You want a, a, a truest definition of the name Yerushalayim in the Hebrew, it's two words, Yerah and Shalom. Or Shalom. Yerah meaning teaching, shalom meaning peace. Jerusalem literally means the teaching of peace. (laughs) What could Jerusalem possibly teach us about peace? 
that it can never come of human will. That it will never work by human design. It can and only will happen by divine will. That peace comes from the Lord, not from the heart of man. Peace can only come from the Lord. You want peace in your marriage? Guess what? You're going to have to go to the Lord. That's where it comes from. You want peace in the workplace? You better invite Jesus to come along with you Monday morning because that's where your peace is going to be. You want peace in the home? You invite Jesus in because peace is only found by the divine will of God. It is never found in the human heart. The human heart is desperate and incurably sick. Jeremiah 17.9 Who can understand it? Peace is of the Lord. But for now, Jerusalem is the cup that causes reeling. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Isaiah 51 verse 22, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for His people... Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, my chalice of anger. You, he says to Israel, you will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. The cup of the Lord. The cup that causes reeling. And that word cup, by the way, that that David uses in Psalm 75, that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 51, the word cup there is kos. K-O-S. Kos. It just means a cup. Interesting, that is not the word Zechariah chose. The word Zechariah uses when, when the Lord says, I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling is soft. S-A-P-H, if you're writing these things down. Soft. And it doesn't mean a cup. It means a bowl. Or a basin. It's large enough for all the nations to drink up. More than just a cup. Verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Isn't it amazing? You can hurt your back and you don't even know what you did once you get into your 40s and 50s. (laughs) Cheryl the other day, and we still haven't really nailed down what it was that happened, but all of a sudden, mid-afternoon, she goes, my back is killing me. And the next morning it was worse. And obviously she had tweaked it somehow. She's better now. Praise the Lord. But how do these things even happen? You know, you just wake up one morning and go, I was sleeping and I hurt myself. (laughs) And the thought of trying to lift a heavy stone, to lift a rock, well, that's the picture that God gives here. Go ahead, try to pick up Jerusalem. Try to move it. Try to change the boundary lines. You will be injured. You will be severely wounded is what the, the wording in, implies there. And all the nations of the, of the earth will be gathered against it. All the nations of the earth. All of them. Our nation has for a long time been in support of Israel. Our nation will not always be in support of Israel. Because every nation on the planet will be against Israel, will be gathered against Jerusalem. And by the way, this is yet another thing that has never happened. 
In the 1948 Jewish War of Independence, all eyes were on Jerusalem. And as I said, the Jewish people lost it. In the 1967 Six-Day War, they regained sovereign control over Jerusalem for the first time in 1897 years. They had control, even over the Temple Mount. All the stories are amazing, I won't go into them right now, but get this, since 1967, only one nation on earth has chosen to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. You know what that nation is? Israel. Not even Canada. And certainly not America. We have never recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And I shared on a Wednesday night recently, there is a, there is a, uh, a, a lawsuit in the Supreme Court. A lawsuit being looked at by our Supreme Court about whether or not an Israeli and American citizen, a child born with dual citizenship, who was born in Jerusalem, should be allowed to have Jerusalem as his birthplace on his passport. Because if we allow Jerusalem to be listed as his birthplace on his passport, then we as the American government would be approving Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and we can't have that. And so our Supreme Court is going to make a decision as to whether or not our country is willing to recognize Jerusalem. And two or three Wednesday nights ago when we talked about this, I made the comment that is one of the most significant things facing the Supreme Court today. And nobody even knows about it. As the elections were taking place, that was taking everybody's attention while this, this lawsuit is going on. And the Obama administration chose to compare, check this out, chose to compare that their lawyers, Israeli control of Jerusalem, they compared it to what the Russians are doing in Crimea. Now this is the world in which we live. No other nation has ever accepted Jerusalem as Israel's capital. None but Israel themselves. No wonder all the nations will be gathered against her. Joel 3 verse 9 says, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Where's the valley of Jehoshaphat? It's also called the Jezreel Valley. It is also called the valley of Megiddo. And it runs along the Jordan Rift Valley from just south of the Galilee. It runs all the way down and it splits off into the Kidron Valley of Jerusalem. Gang, all the nations will be gathered there. All the nations of the earth. Revelation 16, verse 13, John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. (laughs) They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And that is this day. That is this day in Zechariah 12. Look at verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. 
Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Note those three words of what God says He's going to do to the enemy and their horses. Bewilderment, madness, blindness. Timahon, Shigaon, and Ivaron in the Hebrew. There is a rhyme scheme there. Bewilderment, madness, blindness. Where have those three words been used before? Deuteronomy 28, verse 28 says, The Lord will smite you with madness, with blindness, and with bewilderment of heart. And the Lord is talking to Israel. As a matter of fact, until we come to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 4, and see these three words used here of the nations, these words are exclusively, were exclusively used for God's judgment for Israel's apostasy. These three words, bewilderment, madness, blindness. God said over and over, He said this multiple times to Israel, this is what will happen to you if you deny Me. This is what will happen to you if you turn from Me. If you fall away, this is what you get. Bewilderment, madness, blindness. By the way, it's still true today. You see, that's what happens to a person who turns away from the Lord. Life just gets bewildering. It becomes maddening. And ultimately you find you're blind to the truth. But God spoke that exclusively for Israel until this day. And in this day, all that judgment that was for Israel in the past will be against all the nations, against Israel. What goes around comes around. And God fulfills all that He said He would. Verse 6. Hey, verse 6, we're halfway through. In that day... I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. What do you think is going to happen there? So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. I like that. What he's saying is there's an all-inclusive salvation of Israel going on. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem are not going to be lifted up above the inhabitants of Judah. And the glory of the house of David is not going to be any greater than the glory of all Judah. The point is, in this all-inclusive salvation, it's about the glory of God. Messiah gets all the glory. Nobody else. Everybody else gets saved. But Messiah gets the glory. Now watch this, verse 8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, the feeble being like David, I get. I understand that. It just means the Spirit of the Lord will be upon them, will be among them, and they're going to be valiant. You know, they're going to be mighty to fight. Like David, the mightiest warrior of of Israel's history. Wow, we're going to be like David. We're going to fight like Dave. But what does it mean that the house of David will be like God? 
And why then does he immediately mention the angel of the Lord? Well, you Bible students know as we've gone through this, the angel of the Lord is always the human manifestation of God. What some call a theophany, a a showing of God, a visible representation of God in the flesh there before people throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Theophany, or what I prefer to call a Christophany. Because it's Jesus showing up in His pre-incarnate self before He was born a babe in Bethlehem. The angel of the Lord. Go back and track this through the Hebrew Scriptures anytime you see the angel of the Lord specifically. He always speaks with the voice of the Lord. He is worshipped like the Lord. He carries the power and the presence of the Lord. He is Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. But what I believe Zechariah is hinting at is that in the personal representative of the house of David will be God. In the person of the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is of the true lineage of David in his first coming, read that again, in that day, the feeble will be like David, of course, but the one, the house of David will be like God. The greatest representative of the house of David ever born to the earth is Jesus. And so what we're coming to here, the recognition, the house of David will be like God because God will be there in the person of Jesus Christ. He's on the scene. And here's the implication. Psalm 44 verse 4 says, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our enemies. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. Paul said, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The feeble will be like David. The house of David like God. For Jesus will be there. Jesus arrives. Messiah shows up and through His power and through His strength and through His presence, the people can fight. The people can stand. There is strength. The glory is God's and the strength is the Lord's. But He moves and He works by His Spirit through people. Which still amazes me that He would choose to do... Look around. That He would look at us and say, you know... I would like to dwell in you. You know, I know you're weak. I know you're feeble. I know you have trouble holding it all together. How about inviting me to do that for you? That's the heart of God. To be present in you, present in me, as He will be present in the house of David. And so the feeble will be strong. My bro Jake is having a little trouble. Pastor Jake... A youth pastor guy sitting in the back. I, I asked his permission to share this with you. Jake needs leaders. And this is not a commercial, but it's true. Jake needs adults who are willing to pour their lives into our teenagers. Because as Jake and I have talked about many times, and he knows the more adults he has available, the more teenagers he can minister to. It's, it's a principle that Jesus applied through the apostles 2,000 years ago. Leslie has the same principle at work. So does Lori Beth. 
Jake was a little frustrated this last week, Wednesday morning. Frustrated because there's, there's so much going on and there's so much he knows that could be accomplished in the hearts and the lives of these teenagers, but there are times, and I have been there so many times over the years, where you feel completely alone. Like, I'm the only one here. That was Wednesday morning. Wednesday evening, seven middle schoolers gave their lives to Jesus. Seven. Yeah, praise the Lord. So now we got to get the baptistry built because, dude, we got to get them washed. <laughs> or field trip to the pond, which I think is probably a, a faster approach right now. And Jake told me Thursday morning, he goes, you know, Rick, I got it. I got it. I understand. Wednesday morning frustration. Wednesday night, God goes, let me show you what I can do through one person. Let me show you what I can do if I show up and you trust that I'm the one who's making it happen. So Jake doesn't really need any leaders at all. No, he needs your help. Here's the thing. Praise the Lord. He invites us into what he's doing. And for those of you who would even give this a second thought, and I hope there are many, think about that. If you were to sign up with Jake and work with our teenagers, God is saying, hey, we're doing something really cool over here on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights, and I'd love for you to be a part of it. You want to be? Want to be in? He invites you to do that. What's more remarkable is that we don't have people beating down the doors to get involved with what God is already up to. He invites us. But never forget, never, ever forget that the Lord is the one who does it. Whether Jake is by himself in a room full of junior hires eating him alive, or he's got 47 leaders around him, and the biggest student ministry on the island, it makes no difference. The Lord is the one who does it. The Lord is the one who gets the glory. The Lord is the one who it is all about. Remember the word of God to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was, was the governor at the time of, of, of Zechariah. Zerubbabel was the guy who was tasked with overseeing the returning exiles. Now how do you think that went? The people who were so excited to travel back to the land, to move in, to live there. And I guarantee you, from day one, the problems started to arise. And the bickering and the dispute and the wondering, maybe we should just go back to Babylon. And how could we ever have done this? And Zerubbabel doesn't know what he's doing. I have trouble even saying his name. What's the guy's problem? And he was called by the Lord. And the Lord said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Zechariah 4.6 It is never by human might. It is by the power of the Spirit of God at work in you. Paul called it the mystery. Colossians 1.26 Which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, listen, which is, don't miss this, Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. Man, with Christ in me, all things are possible. I can do all things, Paul says, through Christ who strengthens me. All things. And whether I have, Jake, 27 volunteers or none, if the Spirit of Christ is at work in me, man, get out of my way because Jesus is doing something. Christ in you. Now, pull back a bit. 
How many of you this morning feel small and insignificant in this church? Can I just tell you, you are absolutely wrong. Because the same God who forms the spirit of the man, the same God who is continuously involved throughout all creation, is right now tugging at your heart saying, I have something for you. I have something I want you to do. And you are invited to be involved in my great work. And it doesn't matter how insignificant I am. It doesn't matter how unknown I am. It doesn't matter how untalented I may think I am. i got nothing to offer. What do I have to offer? Christ in you is more than you can ever, ever imagine. Psalm 60, verse 12, Through God we shall do valiantly. And it is He who will tread down our adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Now, with all that in mind, we come to the most solemn moment in that day. It won't be the reaping of the adversaries. It will be the weeping of Israel. Not the fears of the enemies, but the tears of Israel. Part 3, the last thing we're going to look at here, the consummation of the cries of Israel. David Barron said of this, that this day will be the culmination, the consummation of every tear of all the cries of Israel throughout all of history, all coming to bear in one specific day. Part 3, the consummation of the cries, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. For this to happen... Excuse me, for Israel to get it, to understand who this is coming with the clouds, it requires that the Spirit of God be poured out on them. You cannot get God otherwise. Unless the Spirit is poured out. You could call this day Israel's Pentecost. For this is the day where lock, stock, and barrel, every surviving Jew, God pours His Spirit out. And in the outpouring of His Spirit, by the outpouring of His Spirit, the people will see and know... Jesus Christ, Yeshua, their Savior. The aha moment of faith in Jesus always comes by the spirit of grace and supplication. If you're sitting there this morning, you're going, I just just don't see Jesus. Well, you know what? You're not going to until the Spirit is poured out on you. Until you have a work of the Spirit in your life. Now, I think He's tugging at you right now. If you happen to be in that place. But you will not, you cannot be born again. You cannot see Jesus. You cannot fully understand who Jesus is or see Him for who He is unless you have poured on you the spirit of grace and supplication. What does that mean? It is a cause and effect. The spirit of grace causes the spirit of supplication. The spirit of grace is first given. That is the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Supplication, prayer is the heart cry response to the grace that is poured out on me. And by the way, the Holy Spirit works that in me too. 
When I said before that it's all a work of the Lord, from start to finish, you understand Christians do not become Christians unless the Spirit is at work. Jesus says, the Father draws you to me. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. It is a work of the Spirit. My faith began because He poured out His Spirit. And my prayers rise up because He has given me the prayers to pray. It all goes back to the Lord. Romans 8.15 You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received, received, note that word, you've received a spirit of, of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's something God gave me. Something He desires to give every man, woman, and child on the planet if they would have it. He gives both the grace and the prayer of supplication. All we have to answer is will we bow to the spirit of grace and supplication? Will we surrender to Him? That, that's your part. That's my part. That's the human part in all of this. Will I surrender to the call of God on my life? The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that one simple word, surrender. All right, Lord, I I give up. I can't fight you anymore. I want to be born again. And here as Jesus comes back, His Spirit is poured out and all surviving Israel sees Him and all surviving Israel begins to mourn. And this word mourn is like, uh, it's like heaving. It's just weeping. It's, it's, it's just gut-wrenching, crying. And modern Jewish scholars fiercely contest this verse. Verse 10. Why? Because... It says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Well, who's talking there? Christians would say Jesus, right? You've got to draw back a little bit. They will look on me whom they have pierced. My friends, this is God speaking in the first person. This is the Lord God who has been speaking through Zechariah of the entire day and suddenly He says, I will pour out on the house of David, that's God, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on Me whom they have pierced. Wait, I? God? The Lord? And this is the realization of Israel when the Spirit is poured out that day, the understanding, He is God. He is Adonai. He has been all along. We didn't know. We didn't understand. God in the first person, you cannot get around it in this verse. You cannot get around God crucified. It's as plain as the language in which it is written. It is the first person. And current Jewish theologians have tried to get around it. What they've done with this verse is retranslated it. If you look in in an average, a common Jewish Bible today, you will find this verse retranslated incorrectly. It reads, And they shall look up to me because of him whom they have pierced. They've added that in. They, Israel, will look up to me, God, because of Him whom they've pierced, the Gentiles, because, you know, they've been at war, so they've been piercing the Gentiles, and we pierce the Gentiles, and then we look up to God, hey, hey, we did, yeah, it was good. We pierced them. And my friends, it's a bad translation. It is not correct Hebrew. It denies the plain, simple, unadorned Hebrew grammar, and you cannot honestly translate it that way. 
You have to translate exactly what it says. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. Why the jump? We've just jumped now from the first to the third person. Why is that? Well, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And what God has just done is explain to us in simplicity the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. He must be God because He's the one who was pierced, but He is also the Son of God because He is Him whom they have pierced. They will look upon Me, they will look upon Him, and they will mourn for Him as mourning for an only Son. And this morning, yes, it is for Yahweh and for His Son who are one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Amos 8 verse 10, I will make it a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Charles Spurgeon said, It is Jehovah Jesus who is pierced, and who pours out the Spirit of grace. The conversion of the Jews, Spurgeon says, is here promised, and they will be converted to a crucified Christ. Today's Jews have a bad taste in their mouth for the word conversion. I would suggest you not use it if you're talking to a Jewish friend about coming to Jesus. Because conversion has a bad connotation in, in Jewish history. Thanks to the convert or die attitude of some of the crusaders. You convert or we will kill you. And so there were false conversions all over the place. Conversion is not something that can be forced. Conversion is never something that comes by fear or by guilt. Conversion only comes, always comes, and by the way, not just Jewish, but all conversion comes as an act of grace. The Spirit of grace. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved, and this through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You hanging in there? We're almost done. The consummation of all the cries of Israel are at the, the Spirit poured out realization of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. And in the moment of His coming, it is grace that saves. Verse 11, In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Hadad Ramon is a city, was a city, a village, and the plain of Megiddo. So this is a location. And there was a great mourning that took place there. What's he talking about? Well, the Jewish people would get this immediately, especially those in Zechariah's day. A great king was killed there just outside of Hadad Ramon, in the valley of Megiddo, King Josiah, the last glorious king of Israel, the last king of Israel who was like his father David, who even, the Bible says, surpassed David in his heart for the Lord. King Josiah was cut down in battle. Second Chronicles 35, verses 20-27 through 27 tell us, there in Megiddo, there at Hadad Ramon, Jeremiah would write dirges about his death. And the people kept a memorial to King Josiah from the time of his death all the way through the end of the kingdom and all the way through the 70 years of captivity. And it's mentioned by the writer of Second Chronicles and Ezra after they return from the captivity. It will be like that kind of mourning, the Lord says, the deep 
horrified mourning that you experienced when you lost King Josiah, you will mourn that way when you see coming King Jesus. Verse 12, the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Natan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Why the family and the wives separate? Because everybody will feel this so personally. It won't be husband and wife and kids in the living room weeping together. It's everybody heading off to their own corners of the house because it's too upsetting even to talk about. It's everybody weeping over the personal, individual reality of Messiah and His return, of who He is. And understanding that and recognizing Him whom they have pierced. And so everybody mourns. i got to point this out. Four families are singled out here. Why? See, I ask these questions. The house of David is pointed out separately. Well, that makes sense. The royal line of the house of David, of course the house of David would mourn. The house of Levi. Well, that's the priestly line. The priest recognizing in this Messiah the true sacrifice who was pierced. But what about Natan and Shimei, the house of Natan? Shimei, we know who Shimei is. He was of the, of the tribe of Levi. Actually, he was a grandson of Levi. Numbers 3.18 tells us. And so the picture there, this probably represents the idea that the house of Levi, even someone like Shimei, from the great Levi himself to grandson Shimei, the whole house of Levi will weep. But what about this other what catches my eye when I read this more than any of the houses mentioned is the house of Natan. You see, some wonder if perhaps it means Nathan the prophet, who was David's close friend, who confronted David about the whole Bathsheba incident. Natan was the one who was sent to David. And so some say it's the house of Natan weeping because that represents the prophetic line. You have the priestly line of Levi, you have the kingly line of, of David, and now you have the prophetic line of Natan. But you know what? I don't think it's that Natan. David also had a son whose name was Natan. A son who was in the direct and uncursed bloodline the human bloodline of David through his son Natan down to Mary to Jesus himself. Luke 3.31 gives us that genealogy. The house of Natan. No wonder his family will mourn when they see Jesus of their own bloodline. They see Jesus himself coming to save Jerusalem in that day. Behold, Revelation 1.7 tells us He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen.